This was a delight of an episode. Dr. Roger Landry was a surgeon working on Air Force pilots for 22 years. He's worked with space shuttles. He's been to almost every important military endeavor in the U.S. in the last 20 or 30 years. But on top of that, he spent his last 20 years focused on long-term care. And his books and seminars, concepts, interests, passion is really, really fun to listen to. I felt like just a sponge today absorbing his wisdom. I hope you enjoy the chat with uh, Dr. Roger as much as I did. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today. Hello, and welcome back to LTC Heroes. Today, I am joined by Dr. Roger Landry. Dr. Roger is a preventative medicine physician, former flight surgeon that spent 22 years keeping Air Force members healthy, and he's a successful author of the book, Live Long, Die Short, a guide to authentic health and successful aging. He's led countless successful endeavors, and now he's here to talk to us about his passions. Dr. Roger, how are you? I'm very well, Peter. Hey, thanks for having me. I've been wanting to be on the show for quite a while. So <laughs> I'm excited because you're well known for a lot of books, for a lot of seminars, even for your interest in words. You have some quotes about words mattering for long-term care. And I also know you're passionate about a lesser known topic, I guess, lesser known Oh, let's call it the elephant in the room, an issue which is purpose and meaning. But before we get into that, I want to explore your background, which is, you know, just notorious with success and military endeavors and lots of national and international press. But I'm interested in all of these decades of beautiful events that have made who you are. Which one stands out to have an impact on what you do today and speaking with topics related to long-term care. As you had mentioned, I've been in the military, took care of flyers, keeping them healthy and performing at their best. And they're pretty much a healthy bunch. Someone once asked me, how did you ever get into senior living? And I said, well, flyers and older adults both have a profound respect for the effects of gravity, you know? But I think what I learned in taking care of flyers, previous to that, I had been in training and I was going to be a cardiologist and a clinical, total clinical medicine person. It taught me about the importance of prevention. It taught me how enormous the need and the potential benefits of focusing on keeping people healthy versus just responding to their diseases and what happens to them. We need people to do that, of course, and we have plenty, but we spend so little of our national budget on prevention and we're seeing with the pandemic, we need to spend a lot more. What it taught me is to focus on populations. My population was flyers and I learned all about them. I learned their life. I flew with them. I did everything so that I, I could speak to them in their language. And when my population, when I was looking for a population after the military, I said, okay, where can I go to where I can have the most benefit? Now, normally in prevention, that would have been children because they have a long life ahead and you want to impact upon their healthy habits. But just around that time, the book Successful Aging had come out. It was the uh, result of a 10-year-long study on aging from the MacArthur Foundation. And there it showed us in 
bold relief that how we age depends mostly upon the choices we make on our lifestyle. And so for the first time, we as humans knew that it wasn't just genes. It wasn't just serendipity or fate or whatever. It was really the decisions that we made every day. And that was enormously important. And then if you looked at the demographic and still look at the demographic, it's a huge population. So the possibilities were enormous. And so that's where I ended up. The fact that my brother had just left the MacArthur Foundation, that was a little bit of it too. You know, he gave me a call and said, let's explore their results. But it is this focus on prevention, on doing doing those things that people have control of and helping them realize that that has enormous importance for their whole lifespan, their whole life's journey. I'm interested in going one step closer, one day closer. Do you remember what it was? Did someone pass you the book and you started to think out loud with your family or your brother, or did someone knock on your door and say, Hey, you know, you're well-known you're a good speaker. Why don't you come share, cross over some information and inspire someone at our facility? Do you remember what it was when you started to be like, ah, oh yeah, this is going to work? I definitely do. (laughs) I, when I left the military, I was recruited by a large hospital system to do all their prevention. It was a very vertically integrated, a huge system, and they wanted to do make a mark on prevention. And I said, that's good because the military is really invested in it, and they invest a lot in prevention. It's important. Saves airplanes, saves trained people who are trained, save lives. And so I said, you know, we in medicine don't do that so much, so here's a system that really wants to do it, so I'm ready to go. So I had worked for them for a little while, and uh, about three years, the CEO called me in and said, you're doing a magnificent job on prevention with us. And I said, well, thank you. She says, but you're hurting our revenue. There it was. Prevention was a nice soundbite, a nice marketing message, but they weren't truly ready yet to invest in prevention because the way they were, their structure was important, the revenue. They invested in big expensive equipment. They needed disease. And it was within a week, my brother called me and said, look, when I was with the MacArthur Foundation, I sat in on their 10 year long study results. And when they briefed the board, one of the board members was Jonas Salk of polio vaccine fame. And I happened to share a cab with Jonas when we went to the airport and uh, he was very excited about the results and said, you know, this, this can change the experience of every human. And he said, but only if someone really applies it. And my brother asked him questions about what that would mean. My brother's a finance guy. He's really not a health guy. And so Jonas told him, we think we should start in senior living. I think we should allow people to take a look at their lifestyle, find out where they may be at risk, what they're ignoring, and then help them with that, with content programming and just education. And so my brother put a team together and one of the first people he called was me. That call came within a week of having the CEO declare uh, sort of not subliminally, but not directly that, you know, we're not that invested in prevention. And <laughs> given that this, this whole thing we did with Masterpiece was definitely geared towards prevention and making lives better, it was very attractive. So those two events, life is something, huh? serendipitous. When you got that call from the CEO or the president and kind of said in one way or another, Dr. Roger, you're too expensive. Do you remember how you took it? Did you have any, any self-doubt or were you further along enough in your professional career that you knew that you were going down the right path? 
The latter, Peter. Uh, you know, the military had so trained me and had, with results, had shown me the efforts could pay off. When I first was in the military, you know, as a flight surgeon, what they really wanted me to do in the military was to prevent airplanes from crashing. And so many of those were caused by human factors. So I was, it was all about human factors, taking care of their health, taking care of their families, because that was an important part of their whole life. And for, during my career, we were able to, in the military as a whole, I, I ended up being the chief flight surgeon of the Air Force in Washington. But in that period of my career, we reduced aircraft accidents and lives lost by 300%. I mean, it, we just cut it. You know, we just cut it into a fraction of what it was by focusing on the human, by focusing on those things that affect performance as well as health, but affect health is one of them. But but there are so many other things that affect performance. And it's just like aging. You know, health is very important. But, you know, your social connection and, you know, you mentioned meaning and purpose and the decisions we make, what we do physically and mentally every day. These are very, very important uh, in the long run. The problem is with prevention, when you do it right, nothing happens. <laughs> and so you don't get the incentive or the funding or all of that. But uh, so it's a very much a, it's a road of, of internal satisfaction and internal positive incentives. But I love it. When I was going over your resume, I could tell that you have hundreds, if not thousands of accolades that would impress the listeners. But I think what I wanted to ask you is, what is one thing that's happened in your professional past as a doctor or working in the military that you're proudest of? It might not be something they introduced you on, on BBC or CNN, or when you uh, give a speech in, in Washington, what's something you tell your grandkids, like, this is what I did. I will give you uh, two things, one from the military and one from my uh, career with uh, older adults. From the military, when I was in there, went in just around as Vietnam was winding down and then the Cold War. So I, I was mostly in during the Cold War, Desert Storm towards the end. But during that Cold War, it was very important that our relationship with NATO be strong. And uh, medically, we didn't have any kind of relationship. And so I got a group together of NATO flight surgeons. I happened to know some of them that I had met when I was at Edwards Air Force Base, the flight test center. They send military physicians there to visit it because of what happens there. And so I had met the Dutch and the Germans and the French and everything. And so when I got to be the chief flight surgeon of Europe in the mid-80s, I called that group together and, and we put a, together a group in a meeting that is still going on today, what, 35 years later, and they call it the Landry meeting. And I'm very proud because uh, what comes from that is a communication and sharing uh, within the, the medical uh, aerospace medicine community, but in medical in general, very proud of that. Secondly, this has happened many times, but you give a presentation and older adults are, are in there in front of you. And as you begin to give your message that it's about lifestyle, that you can do it, that it is very possible. It's not, you don't have to run marathons and eat bark. You know, it's just about taking short steps, small steps towards being healthier and help them with that. And to see their faces light up. I mean, it sounds a little hokey, but I'm telling you to give a talk and really be able to see, you know, without the words, the words can come and that's wonderful. But when you know that you have impacted someone's life, that you have impacted the rest of their life, this third chapter, if you may call it, 
and that they, they go out there optimistic, more uh, self-confident that they indeed can make a difference, that they're not just at the whim of whatever, that with disease can come roaring down on them, particularly with dementia, because, I mean, we all think that that's just, you know, that's in the cards. There's nothing much you can do about it. But when, when they know that there's a lot that you, they can do about it, that sense of, uh, of confidence and ultimately self-efficacy, that they can do this and, and you show them an approach like Kitesen, small steps towards change, not the big ones, not the New Year's resolutions ones that all fail, small steps you can't fail at. That's very rewarding for me. And so that's multiple, many instances that, that keep me going, especially, you know, it's hard to travel. So if you're going to travel, you'd like to have some, uh, some positive results from that travels. I like both of those stories and incidents because it leads me into the next question and topic, which relates to meaning and purpose. Uh, anyone who would look over your CV would probably think you would have talked about your work with NASA and the space shuttle or, you know, your experience in at, at some important talk in front of a bunch of a, important, famous people. And you mentioned one thing that probably most of us have never heard of is a committee that's still around and has had a lasting impact. And the second one is very, might come off as very mundane, but has an impact inside your heart and your passion. How do you define meaning and purpose? And I guess let's start not from the academic point of view, nor from the medical point of view. Talk about it from your point of view, because you just told me what's meaningful to you. Yes, and I think that's I think that's the way. Well, we should look at almost everything that we try to understand in the abstract is to humanize it and to, to internalize it if necessary, or to have some compassion and see it in someone else. So, how about you imagine that you wake up from sleep, and as far as you can, there's absolutely no reason for you to get up. There's no one waiting for you to be there. There's no job that you need to do. There's no calls that you need to make. There's no one who has been just on the edge of their seat waiting for your words. And there's nothing. And you wake up and you start to wonder, why should I even get up? And you remember in the past where there were things that were there and you had families and career and you developed a, a reputation of some sort in your career and you were respected. And even towards the end of your career, they they looked at you as an elder and they came to you for advice. You pass a certain time. You're marginalized by society, which is what we've been doing ever since the Industrial Revolution with our elders. And you're invisible. And can you imagine what that would be like? I mean, feel that. No purpose and meaning. We wither. We know we wither. The data is very, very clear that the, the incidence of all the major diseases from cardiac to cancer to dementia are all worse in people who have no meaning and purpose. And so this is, I'm afraid, is overlooked. It's particularly overlooked as we tend to age and start to deal with impairments. So a perfect example is, you know, your population, the population who listens to you and those they care for. So we care for them in a magnificent way. It is just so admirable. There's altruism there, there is skill there, and we care for them, we keep them safe and secure. But there's more. We need more as humans. And I believe that despite all the good work we do, and there are many people who, who have addressing this, but in general, this is not seen as something that you would take in on an intake. You know, so someone is first comes in, you take in on an intake. Do you ask them, 
What did you love to do when you were younger? What's on your bucket list of things that you wanted to do that you may not have gone into yet? You know, I never got around to doing. And using that as the potential uh, building blocks or raw materials to craft a creative, it probably has to be creative, you know, we're not going to swim the English Channel or something like that. But if they're still swimming, they can do it in a pool. But and craft something that is going to have them get out of bed because, you know, we can talk about being physical. We can talk about being intellectually active. We can talk about even social connection. But without a purpose, those things tend not to happen. And with purpose, those things tend to happen. And they all need to happen in order to have a healthy longevity. So this is core. This is core to who we are as humans. Our hunter-gatherer background, you know, 95, 99% of the time we've been on Earth, we were hunter-gatherers. And we all had a role. If you look at the blue zones, you know, of course, the blue zones for your listeners who don't know, this is, these are areas in the world identified as places where people to get to be very old, but they're very vital. In Okinawa, you ask someone how old they are and they'll lie to you and tell you they're older because to be older is to not only be respected, it is to be an essential part of that society, an essential part where, come, where people come to look for you for wisdom. They tap into your experience. And this has been the case with us as humans up until around the Industrial Revolution, when production became the currency and we marginalized our older adults. Before that, older adults were the source. You, you were blessed to have an older adult in your community because, hey, they're resilient. They, they're survivors. They have a lot of experience. And usually there's some wisdom that comes from that. And to just push that off to the side like we've been doing now for a couple centuries or more. It is not only the society that loses, it's the older adults themselves. I think I want to ask, why do you think we fail might be strong? Why are we ignoring, neglecting, or not tackling this issue or this demon, which is providing meaning and purpose. And before you tell me why you think we're doing it, I want to be vulnerable because I think sometimes being corrected helps for listeners to learn is my guess is that, that we're too busy in our communities, or even we might think that trying to find the meaning might come off as belittling or condescending. And it's because we make purpose way too important. We put it way up on this pedestal of saying that, you know, like Dr. Roger isn't going to want to talk about, you know, how he taught his grandchild how to tie a shoe or went fishing. And that was the most meaningful thing. Rather, I'm not going to be able to talk to about Dr. Roger about NASA and the shuttles because one, he can't remember it or, or two, I don't know how to talk about it. Those are my guesses. Why do you think that we have addressed so many issues of getting older and meaning and purposes we're still struggling with it? Well, I'm not going to correct you because I think you were spot on, but and with a couple other reasons, I think. I think, first of all, as much as we like to think we're not, we all are afflicted with some ageism of sorts because we have all been raised in a society surrounded by ageism. It's probably, in most cases, not malevolent anymore, but it's there. You know, it's in the jokes, it's in the greeting cards, it's in, you know, just how we uh, have viewed. Uh, it's in our language, as we said before, you know, the word elderly is just packed full of messages that aren't positive, especially for an older adult. So that's the first thing. And so when we are that way, we don't 
think of older adults as people with a purpose. Their careers are done. They have done their, they have completed their purpose. We're celebrating them and they can be off to the side now in the margins of society and we will take care of them. It'll be payback for uh, what they have contributed, but it's over. You know, they've had their time. They've raised their kids. They've had their career and it's over because older adults don't have purpose, do they? I mean, they play golf or once they get sick and impaired, we just take care of them and they read or do puzzles or whatever and play bingo. And it's there. That's part of it. Secondly, you alluded to this. We think of purpose in grandiose terms always. And it's, it's just, you know, purpose is defined by the individual, not by someone else. It has to be individualized. So for one person, it could be raising roses. It could be taking care of a cactus. It could be getting rid of one political party or landmines in the world or hunger in the world. But it doesn't matter, really. What matters is, is that this gives that person a sense of worth. But we as a society think it has to be grandiose and therefore we don't address it for everybody. We might, as you alluded to, we might actually offend if we raise the issue. So, you know, what do you do? You know, when you were younger, you had an answer. But what do you do when you're older? You know, I mean, you don't have an answer and we don't want offense. We are busy in senior living. There's absolutely no question this pandemic maybe even more so. And so we do have to prioritize and we want to make sure that we keep them healthy and uh, safe. And we, we'll, we'll get around to that. That's a good thing, but we'll get around to that. And perhaps we don't. So I, I think there's a, a plethora of uh, reasons, probably some that I, I haven't mentioned, but it's just, you know, what I'm saying is that I think it should be on the checklist of when someone comes in, you when, you know, you find out about them, you put their clothes away for them or whatever, is to sit down and take an intake about their life, about what has excited them. I mean, and this could be a matter of, it could be five or 10 minutes for a few days over a few days time, or it could be one conversation. But, you know, I wrote a paper once from caring to coaching, and I don't mean we get away from caring. But that, you know, the basic caring, we continue, but we start to introduce coaching into what we do. Coaching in the sense that it is about asking questions that elicit answers that can even be a revelation, not only for the interviewer, but for that one person interviewed. And that from those usually comes some sort of uh, indication of what's important and what they might be interested in doing. But again, older adults, probably the worst reservoir of ageism you know, that we have, and they're not thinking in terms of purpose in many cases, but they will respond to it. I think the topic of creating purpose and meaning for a community's residents can be probably scary for upper management, especially if you're not of the creative type, if you're introverted, you're not a talker, you might not even be particularly good at questions. And I'm sure in your experience, you've seen some very simple, actionable uh, baby steps to making it a difference and moving the needle in on this variable. Can you give any examples of facilities that you've worked with that have done simple, inexpensive steps in the right direction? Yes, definitely. Uh, I'm very proud that uh, many of the communities we work with in Masterpiece uh, has have taught us many things. Uh, you know, first of all, before I do that, though, you know, with any job that you have, with any career that you have, it's sometimes we're busy and we don't sit down and say, why am I in this? 
what is the purpose of my career? What am I attempting to do? And with long-term care, what is it? Yes, okay, it's caring for them, keeping them safe and secure. But is it not helping them have the best life experience possible? And I don't mean entertainment. I mean healthy, functional, satisfied. And, and a major component of that has to be a reason to get out of bed. You don't even call it purpose. That may be, you know, a little off-putting, you know, that's a big deal. How can we get them a little bit more excited to be out of bed? And we're not going to do it. We're going to facilitate it by asking coaching type questions. So having said that, you're right. Very small things can do this. There are companies that, uh, by the way, like Life Bio with my friend, Beth Sanders, who they, they'll take a memoir. They will assist the person write their memoir for their family. They have a new way to do that, which I think is just magnificent. And they pair up the older adult with a younger person, tech savvy, who will write the thing, but they interview that older adult about their life. I'm telling you, you know, I've done a lot, but when my grandkids ask me about my life, I just can't tell you how rewarding that is. I mean, <laughs> because they care, you know, it's, I'm not trying to impress them, but you know, they care. And so just asking is huge because it gives their, their life some meaning and some gravitas. And I think it sparks the potential for a purpose. So there's helping someone write their memoirs and there are companies that can do that or, or they can do that. You know, helping others is huge. So my mother, when she was nearly crippled with arthritis, but still could knit. And so she would make teddy bears for children in disaster areas. And she linked up with a company that that's a senior living community she was with, helped her with. And so she'd make these teddy bears and they'd put them off and get them off there. And I can't tell you how that made her feel. She never got any feedback or letters or anything, but she knew in her heart that here's a child with a teddy bear and that's probably all they had. And uh, it was huge. You know, asking people uh, what their bucket list is. We've already said that, you know, and you can, they can laugh and think, but there's a creative way to make one of those a possibility in, in some way. There's, you know, pen pals that we, people still do that actually write letters, taking care of plants, asking someone what excites them. It really doesn't have to be huge. And it, in fact, more than likely, the one that's probably most effective is a small one, because uh, then the individual feels like they have more control and they're not so dependent upon others to uh, help them make it happen. But uh, again, I think it's just talking to the person and something will come to the surface. I'm telling you, if you just communicate. I like those examples, and I'm going to give you a hack that I stole from kind of a life coach slash psychologist who was helping me figure out my meaning and purpose about a year ago, and then how I adjusted it to an older uh, individual, which is my father. And what this coach had me do is ask uh, the people closest to me, what are things that I have a strong opinion about? from anything like show up on time, call people by their first name, never buy a car on credit, you know, always explain to your kid when they ask why, just simple things like that. And then ask, and then Peter, go back and research in your mind why you believe those. And I did this with my father about two months ago, partially based upon watching the documentary of the person who introduced us, which is Sky Bergman. And Sky's documentary really inspired me to dig up 
the meaning and purpose in my parents' life. I, I asked my dad to write down important things that he had been taught. And then after he did that, I asked him to go down and track it down. And that simple exercise brought up so many stories. And he sent me things that I would have never known. He'd never told me because I'd never asked him. Absolutely. That's a magnificent story, Peter. I'm so happy you had that experience. I think it's an example of something that, you know, kind of grassroots. It doesn't have to become with trumpets and red carpets. It just is organically grown and it can happen just with communication. It, that is magnificent. Sky, by the way, as you know so well, has a, a questionnaire that she lives, that she asked uh, people when, if, when she interviews them for her uh, lives well lived and and going on with that what a marvelous person isn't she great yeah yeah <laughs> she, she has this questionnaire and these questions are, are very non-off-putting but they're provocative below the the take notice be careful range just but they do provoke thinking and they provoke which is exactly what you went through with this exercise that you had that's wonderful dr roger i think i'd like to go into kind of nuances that you've seen in your clients at My Masterpiece Living and what you have seen take off from your book, Live Long, Die Short. And going into that and how you've seen that evolve, just give us a, a one-minute introduction on why you wrote it and where it's grown from there because it's now six or seven years since you published it and it's very well received, great critics, but I'm sure that it's grown, especially in these times of COVID. Yes, uh, thank you. That's, those are kind words and I, and I do feel uh, you know, very proud of uh, some of the things that have happened. I wrote it because one of our founding fathers for Masterpiece uh, was Dr. Khan, and he was one of the co-leaders of the uh, MacArthur study on aging. And he helped us uh, begin Masterpiece, one of our founding fathers. And he had uh, co-authored the book, Successful Aging, with John Rowe. And, uh, you know, he would talk periodically. They said, there's a few things that I would, uh, I would update, that I would change. And we used to have conversations about that. And so at one point, you know, I said to him, well, Dr. Khan, what would you think that if I wrote a book, would you write the preface? He goes, certainly the forward. Yes, I would. We didn't spend a lot of time going over what he would write, but he reviewed what I wrote. And just having that stamp of approval was huge. I think successful aging and what he did is core was seminal work, but I think it needed to be put into even more practical terms, which was my idea about the 10 tips and things that you can do about the 10 tips and to tell a story of masterpiece uh, because that is, that is woven between uh, the pages of that book. So that's why I wrote it. And probably something that I've learned the most from, you know, as in medicine, yeah, I have colleagues. I, I try never to do it, but I have colleagues that put things in such obtuse terms, you know, maybe trying to show your esoteric or how much you know. And, and it's like professors in universities. They talk in big words, but they don't think in terms of their audience and they don't think in terms of their audience using that information and using it in a way as a, as a practical, as a stimulus for practical tips. So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to give practical tips. I wanted to put it in everyday language and I wanted to make everyone feel that they too could influence their lifestyle so that they're more likely to have a healthy longevity and they can do it just with minor decisions in their life over time in small steps. Very doable. Is there a tip that while well received before COVID today has evolved or has 
been exacerbated or, or strengthened because of the isolation that our older community has faced and that, you know, concentrating on this has helped some people get through this past tough year? Yes, Peter. Good question. Two, two things uh, come to mind. First of all, the obviously is, is the tip to stay connected. And uh, I used to say that and people would nod and they kind of knew it. But, you know, it was it was OK. You know, we are connected. What's the big deal? You know, especially young people, older people begin to see that they're losing connections and they would start to. But this thing. This was this. We looked at life differently through this lens of COVID-19 and that the isolation that came at all ages, uh, not so much in younger ages with families, but particularly in mid-level people and older adults and single young adults, this isolation. I don't have to wax eloquent for someone to understand that this is important for health, for peace of mind, for quality of life for uh, having a spiritual peace and huge. That's very huge. The other one, which slipped my mind now, but it will come back. <laughs> That's so fun. I, I already have a, another question teed up because I, I feel like we could stay on here for five hours. Right. So apologize for the interruption, but feel free to take over and you remember the second tip. To my rescue and I, it'll come back to me. Go ahead. <laughs> With healthy living and healthy longevity, this has been kind of a key concept that is a pillar of your teaching for at least the last decade. I think that people probably start thinking, probably eat well, and then they think, I don't know, maybe yoga. You've already introduced meaning and purpose. What are other angles or elements to healthy and longevity that don't get enough attention? I understand why they don't. First of all, you know, having gone through medicine, I saw what happened to me. And uh, that was that, that I went in there thinking humans were humans and they're organisms and they're complex. And because there's so much information, all the information was fed through funnels, the gastrointestinal funnel, the cardiovascular funnel, the neurological funnel. And we basically in medicine have broken the human up just to be able to manage all the information that's there and, and therefore made specialties that we frequently, too frequently, forget that this is all one organism, a complex organism. And the mind and the body, how they interact, we kind of forgot that in medicine and, and I believe in it as a society, and we're beginning to relearn that. What aspects of healthy longevity are go unnoticed or less emphasis? Yes, thank you. So, and this leads to that we are complex humans that, you know, we're not just our cardiovascular system, we're not just our brain function. If we're going to have healthy longevity, it's important that we pay attention to our lifestyle in a very holistic way, that all aspects of who we are we have to pay attention to. I mean, if we, if we move every day physically, and yet we are subjecting ourselves to huge amounts of stress every day, that's not going to work. I mean, as much physical stuff as you do, as much mental stuff, social connection even, that may help with the stress. But if we don't address the stress part and what is causing that and uh, start to find more peace and fulfillment, we're not going to do well. You know, this is when we don't function, our systems don't function in a vacuum. You know, Ellen Langer from Harvard, her book Counterclockwise and her experiments that show the relationship between our brain and our bodies. And uh, to the extent 
that we want something to happen, that we see, we feel something should happen in our brains. Our bodies then work to bring that to reality within reason, of course. And she did experiments back in the 70s where she took 70 year old men, filmed them, did blood tests and everything, then brought them to an environment 20 years earlier for them. So in, back in the 50s then, and very creatively created this, recreated this environment. And they behave so differently in that, in that environment as if they were 20 years younger. Everything changed for the positive, the, the blood parameters, the hearing, the, the eyesight, how they behaved, you know, how much they moved, everything changed. And all she did was put them into a different environment. So the relationships are you. So which ones I think are ignored? I think the whole package is what we really ignore. And we tend to get focused because, again, a lot of information and, you know, we'll get something about diet and we'll get all hepped up on diet. And that's important. Diets and sleep. okay, and sleep, the physical fitness and your brain function and social, you know, and we'll run off down that cul-de-sac. And that's all very good. There'll be payback for that. But we can't ignore the context of that. The context is us. It's a human, a fully functioning human being. So you have to think of it as it's more than a four-legged chair. It's, uh, you know, however many chairs, uh, legs it is, you have to pay attention to all those stabilizing legs that hold you up as an organism. I like that explanation. It made me think about how, you know, it. this might be a bad parallel, so I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it made me think it's like someone who goes in to a very specific college and just studies one natural science and doesn't come out well-rounded versus going into liberal arts and you have a bunch of core. Maybe are you trying to say that holistically we need to go at it like a liberal arts school, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, yes, yes, it, that is very true. And and how do we feel about liberal arts now? Well, we, we feel, well, it's kind of a waste of time. You know, you got to get right to the meat. And I totally believe that in our education system, we should focus on skills that, uh, you know, that someone can make a living and not have to go through liberal arts if that's not for them. But we need people in liberal arts. We need people who who see the whole picture. And more and more, we're having physicians who do that. And uh, that's important. And medicine is starting to, to realize it. You know, up to 70% of the medical visits that we have are uh, stress is a major factor for that having to happen, stress. And when you realize that stress really is self-induced, yeah, there's stressful situations out there, but how we respond to it that those stressful situations that's the stress so the stress is really self-induced i mean you either fix it or make a plan to fix it that's doing something you walk away because it's not yours it's not yours to stress about don't carry it around on a backpack or you accept it it's reality you get a flat tire you can rant and rave to the gods about it or you can just fix it or call someone to fix it, you know? I mean, but, you know, we don't do that. We rail to the gods frequently. Why me? Why now? Why this tired? Why did I get it? You know, you know what I'm talking about. Stress makes me want to go back to your experience with the pilots. Were you looking at stress back then holistically? Is this something that you, along with our society, along with long-term care, have grown to take into account as part of our health? 
Yeah, most definitely, Peter. In fact, I, I give the Air Force credit. The training they gave me uh, was all about human factors. Human factors was their way of saying, you know, the human in context, you know, the human, the whole human. And that's why they, in their wisdom, had me take care of their families, their wives, their kids. It had me travel with them because uh, it had me fly with them. It had me investigate crashes uh, so that I was uh, fully embedded in their lives and what they experienced. Although they're hugely capable of compartmentalizing uh, the pilots, and that's a good thing. So the world could be coming apart for them, and most of them can compartmentalize and focus on the job, be in the present, and that doesn't even come into view. But they are human in the end, and uh, we would see human factor accidents. So it taught me that, yes, you know, you can focus on uh, health, but once again, you can focus on, on whatever, but it's the whole being. And that's why the physical, the mental, the social, the, the spiritual, the meaning and purpose. These are things that uh, each one of them, the research tells us, is critically important to healthy longevity. It increases the risk when you don't pay attention to it for all the bad things happening, but all of them, you know, like dementia and cardiac disease and cancer, all of them. And so there's, it's not one direct thing. It's you pay, don't pay attention to one, even social connection, and you're at higher risk for whatever it is out there that's bad to happen to you. I know that you are passionate about talking about words. You have uh, well-known quotes all over the internet related to words and lexicon. Is this something that you became interested and passionate about post-military, or were you interested in, in words 30 years ago? Well, in the military, uh, aviation, you have to be very concise. <laughs> you know, you're talking to air traffic controllers, you're over the radio. And speaking to flyers, uh, you had to get right to the point and a lot of humor. And uh, so I became much like uh, Hemingway, not in the sense of his quality of his writing, but he, he writes very concisely and very, you know, there's nothing extraneous there. So yes, I did learn from the military that it was very important that words were important, but in senior living, even more so because much more so because words, they come with a lot of baggage. And that's because we grow up in a society uh, that lays baggage on words as we grow. And I told you before, we are still in a society where most of us have grown up with ageism all around us. And so some words that are meant to be uh, totally just descriptive are more than descriptive. They are uh, inflammatory. They're degrading. They're disrespectful to older adults. And that's difficult. And if someone draws attention to that. I mean, someone, most people are, are surprised, but you know, what you have to do is like most things that have to do with bias, prejudice, or anything, put yourself in the other person's shoes and receive that word or that sentence or that deed. And how would you feel about it? And the empathy and the compassion that can come from that can overcome that. So, you know, words, we mentioned elderly. Why do we say he still does this? Still does this. I mean, why? Uh, you know, okay. I guess we just expect that someone is not going to continue to walk every day or write books or draw or whatever, because we just don't expect them to. And many of our words are, uh, they can undermine meaning and purpose. They can undermine a sense that uh, I can still grow. 
as long as you have a pulse, you can grow. I, Stephen Hawking showed us that, didn't he? But there are words that undermine that message or that belief and uh, the way people are treated uh, as invisible or as needing care only and totally incapable of contributing anymore. I mean, that sounds horrible, but we do that in many places, even though we have no intention of conveying those messages. And we have only good in our hearts when we do that. And so it takes knowledge of what could be offensive. That's important. And asking someone if, uh, you know, they get a little put out, why? I think that life experience with the sense of empathy and compassion, I think we can overcome this. Is there a word that you have tried to change its use or overuse or misguided use in long-term care that you've gotten the most amount of pushback from, from our industry, from my peers, your peers? Oh, one I wanted to change and the, and the industry pushed back. Uh, I had one in mind about one I wanted to change. I'll tell you that one. That's the F word facility, because that sounds so institutional. And so we usually use community and that sort of thing. But one that they're pushing back on. Okay. Well, I think about that one. I remembered what I forgot during the pandemic. The other thing that people became very uh, appreciative of more than they did before was nature. And, uh, you know, what nature does for us, uh, like I said, we, we're hunter gatherers for most of the time we've been on Earth and nature was a part of who we are and who we who we will be. And it's in our very DNA. It's not a place you just visit. And that's what we had come to think. And so I think during this pandemic, I think when uh, we were able to get outside and just be was a forest bathing or whatever they call some of these things that I think we had a very incredible appreciation for the role of nature in our healthy longevity and in our peace and in our humanity. I can relate to that. And I'm, I was able to go outside because I live on a farm essentially. And um, I even connected with nature and I don't think that I would have read your 10 tips a year and a half ago and paid attention to that one. And you're right. I would put that in my top three this year. Right. And, you know, the role of pets, you know, the what role did they have? They always have a role, but it mostly it's it's not appreciated. But I think it was much more appreciated, particularly people living alone with a pet. But even when not, even a family was it. Now, there's another question on the table and uh, you have to help me with that one again. That it was, is there anything that we pushed back where you and the uh, lexicon fans are, or passionate lexicon peers have pushed on us and uh, we haven't accepted it right away. Yeah, I think that what that term was uh, successful aging, actually. Now, Dr. Khan was part of the 10-year-long study, and he was a founding member for us, and he wrote the book, and it was called Successful Aging. He was trying to convey that this was about uh, aging in a better way, high functionality. And uh, even when it was first published, the industry, the academics pushed back saying, well, what does that make someone who's not successfully aging, unsuccessfully aging? He made sure that he told me that when you write your book, make sure that when, whenever you use the term, and I did use it in the title at the time, I don't use it so much anymore, and I'll tell you why, but make sure that you qualify it, that there is no, that it's successful aging versus usual aging. 
versus what we usually see, which is mostly still about decline. And successful is that you don't decline. So with that, we defended it for a while, but there was no, you know, that gets to be a waste of energy. And we appreciated what they were trying to say. And we certainly didn't intend that someone was either, it was a pass fail thing. And so we use the term healthy longevity now. And because there was pushback, a lot of people accepted it willingly and, and understood, but there were many that did. And, and it just, again, it wasn't, I didn't want it to be about semantics. I wanted it to be about a better life journey. And so uh, we use healthy longevity. I want to know how you stumbled upon the term Kazen. Do you remember the day or who introduced it to you and what your reaction was? I was uh, doing research for my book, Peter, and it was in the uh, the lifestyle section of the introduction to the 10 tips and, uh, you know, fully realized that uh, if you ask someone how many are still living a New Year's resolution that they made in their lives, and I usually get probably less than 1% of a crowd will, will ever tell me that they are. And we fail miserably at it. And so I was doing research as to where is there successful change, change in general. And it led to organizational change, but I was looking for personal. And this is a term, it's a Japanese term, and it's uh, how the Japanese approach organizational change and personal change. And, on, and oddly enough, it was brought there by Deming from the US. And uh, we kind of forgot about it, but he, the Japanese, sorry, didn't. And it's basically small steps. It is basically that physiology is, is that in our heads, we have a, the amygdala in our brain. And this is the fear center that we now know when we have brain scans that that fires when the body is, uh, when the person is faced with a large change and that can be put upon them or it can be self-induced, but this fear center fires. The basic outcome of that is that we fail. We're doomed. And so when we take small steps, this area of the brain, the amygdala, that does not fire. And so if you want to lose you know, a weight, you don't look at the goal as whatever number of pounds. You look at it as you know, what's the smallest thing that I can do to start to burn more calories or to eat a little less. Someone said to me, I'm going to spit the first bite of a candy bar out. You know, someone else says, I'm going to take 10 more steps a day. Now that we have no respect for that in our country. That's, that's ridiculous. You wouldn't go up in a bar and brag about taking 10 more steps a day or spitting the first bite of a candy bar out. And so we are conditioned to want to go for the braggable change, but this small change, you cannot fail. If for some reason you set a goal that you don't reach, it's just because you shot too high. You just, you understand that you take a step back. And what this does is that it builds self-confidence, self-efficacy, competence. And if you have the patience and you will get there, you cannot fail. You just may take longer than you thought or take a long time. But when you get there, the change is durable. You know, if you, if you go on a crash diet, you know, you only eat broccoli or something. Yeah, you're going to lose weight. But you can't live that way. And so you'll, you'll recidivate this way. You do it in such a way in such small steps that you do change your life for the better. It's durable. I love the term. I love the approach. It is so optimistic and uh, builds such confidence. Uh, and I have lots of very positive feedback about that. It wasn't my creation. I'm just a 
the conveyor of the information. Well, I hadn't heard of it. So I appreciate the messenger teaching me a really cool concept that I won't forget. Dr. Roger, we're starting to wrap up. And one thing that comes to mind is you learned a lot from your previous profession. I'm wondering if you've learned anything about yourself from working in long-term care. Well, I have, Peter. And the fact that I'm older (laughs) and uh, I've been doing it now for 20 years and uh, I'm a lead boomer. So this has become, when I started out, it was talking about aging, but now it has become more personal. And uh, I have learned that some of my messages are absolutely true and I better get around to doing it myself. <laughs> uh, it's true. You know, as a physician, you talk about a lot of things, but it's uh, many times it's do as I say, not as I do. I have in moments of quiet when I really think about it or, or someone says to me, well, do you do that? That has been a, a wake up call. I mean, I do live, I, I see myself as a role model in preventive medicine. You kind of have to be, but you know, <laughs> I have my, my moments. And so it has, uh, it has taught me to be empathetic, compassionate, uh, forgiving uh, of myself and to look at it, uh, you know, certainly to be in the present, but to expect that it's going to be a longer road for me. I expect to live longer and uh, I expect to hopefully meet triple digits and do everything that I need to do that. But I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do it in, uh, with driving myself with a whip. I'm going to do it like Kitesen with small steps and make it durable. And I'm going to enjoy the ride. I have one short follow-up on that, and you'll remember this because you lived in the 90s like I did. In the 90s, we used to tie a colored string around our wrist to remind us of something that we needed to improve upon. What is that thing that you would tie around your wrist and say, man, I do a lot of things that I say, but this one I still need to improve upon? This is kind of like one of those interview questions, you know, what's your worst fault? You know, <laughs> they, they tell you, I try too hard. You know, I, I just need to feel better about myself. I need to make sure that that you also have faults, Dr. Roger. No, that's a fair question. And it's a very good question. I want to be more present. I think that presence is, um, you know, the, the movie, um, I've forgotten it, but uh, there's Curly, the cowboy who knew everything, you know, city slicker. And they asked him, so what's the one thing? And for me, and relating to stress, the thing is being present, being mindful. Hmm. I think that we are a society that doesn't uh, value that. We have designed a society that makes it difficult to do, but it's absolutely doable. And to me, it's it's the absolute foundation of health and quality of life. And uh, I love that answer. I need to do more of it. I love that answer. And I can relate to it. I believe I mentioned to you a week or two ago when we were on the phone, that the book that I've probably reread the most and gifted the most is the five languages of love. And I always equate quality time as being present. And it's also the thing that I most focus on. So thank you for being very vulnerable and sharing that. Dr. Roger, for signing off, I like to ask, what is one mentor in your life that has influenced the way that you approach long-term care and the work you're doing for our industry? I think that would be Dr. Robert Kahn. Again, uh, we talked about him. He wrote Successful Aging, was was a co-leader of the 10-year-long study on aging. Dr. Khan, when he was mid-80s, he was in Ann Arbor, University of Michigan Emeritus, and he was walking with his wife in a car garage, and he was hit by a, a car, a drunk driver, within the garage. 
skull, skull fractures uh, and other fractures. And he was, he was not a large man. He, you know, someone would have called him frail, but he worked at being healthy. And uh, here he was 85. I would have thought he was a goner and I, I, he was a role model to show that he knew that this was an important time in his life. The rest of his life was dependent on it. He worked hard. He did what he needed to do and he bounced back and he lived to be a hundred. But that episode certainly uh, added to the other more basic things. And that was his, his kindness and, and understanding of other opinions and his absolute ability to, uh, like we said with the pilots in Hemingway, to be very concise. He, he actually had majored in English in, in undergraduate school, and he was such a fine communicator, but he didn't beat you up with it. It was uh, usually reserved for a particular moment. And when he spoke, everyone listened. And uh, I respected that. I would love to be able to do more of that. He was a mentor to me. There were many. But that one for uh, senior living, because he taught me that aging is, is a privilege and that not all of us get. Life is a gift. It is, you know, like most gifts, we should deeply appreciate it and uh, be grateful for it and uh, do our best to get the most out of it. Hmm. Going back to the example or the exercise I gave my father of beliefs that I hold strongly to and would teach my son. Um, one of them is life is a privilege. And if I had to go back and figure out where that meaning comes from, my mom told me that a lot. So I'm glad we wrapped up on that. Dr. Roger, there are going to be some listeners who are going to want to see your seminar on Tao, find your book and hear about your talks. Where's the best place for us to find you online? It's probably livelongdieshort.com. That uh, goes with the book. The masterpiece, my masterpiece, living.com. Also, those two areas, one's the company, one's the, the book. But either one will get you that, and I welcome it. Peter, I want to thank you for this opportunity and for what you do. And I'm incredibly envious that you live in a zoo. <laughs> well, well, when things get a little bit better and we're almost all vaccinated at this point, I'll see you in the middle of the U.S. and we'll go swim with the penguins. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Roger. The deal. Thank you, Peter. Visit ltcheroes.com to join our Facebook group for nurses and our exclusive LinkedIn group for LTC owners. Visit ltcheroes.com for your exclusive access today. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit Experience.Care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today.